0: Hi, I'm Judith Dreyer. Thank you for joining me for this podcast series, At the Garden Gate Presents, The Holistic Nature of Us. My intent is to take us, you and I, into a better understanding of the concepts behind our holistic nature and how that ties directly to the holistic nature of the world around us. How can we connect the dots in practical ways that we are nature and nature is in us? I will be featuring authors and educators, practitioners, and others whose passion for this earth helps us create bridges. We'll see what's trending, what's relevant to our world today, not just for land use, but to connect the dots between ourselves and nature. It is time for practical action and for profound interchange so our natural world is valued once again. Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Robert Radin, a fellow author and scientist. Bob's book, *Echospasm*, a sci-fi environmental thriller, intrigued me. I follow the GMO issue, which he touches upon in this book, and I'm deeply concerned by the chemicals and genetic engineering used in our seeds and crops and what the future ramifications could be for our health and the planet itself. So without further ado, let me introduce Bob Radin. Author of Echo Spasm. Hi, Bob. How are you today?
1: I'm doing fine. Judith, how are you?
0: Good. Well, it's a delight to have you here as part of this po- podcast series because we're going to be talking about holism and uh, a holistic approach from a very different angle. So let's talk about you and your story, Echo Spasm. Tell me more about it.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, in terms of context of the story, um, I-, I am trying to get across the the need for people to understand the environment, respect it, and, uh, and that will that'll all come out as we talk. But I wanted to make a point because the, thinking of the climate change debate and how frustrating it can be at times when people seem not to listen. And it just seems that some people can be convinced by facts and documentaries and reason, but other folks can, be, can seem unpersuaded by those methods, particularly in this era of what we call fake news. But they may be moved by direct appeal to their emotions through drama and fiction. So I hope that ecospasm being a dramatic, a sci-fi thriller of unintended consequences that, as a novel and hopefully as a movie, may motivate some of those people to reconsider the consequences intended and unintended of the choices we all make and the actions we take in our relationship um, with the natural world, frankly, on which we depend for our survival as a species. so. So, with that, I don't
0: think. Um, yes, t- yes, I'd love to hear hear more about it. Go ahead.
1: Well, Ecospasm, as I said, it's a sci fi and it's an environmental thriller. It's a mystery novel with suspense and surprise. These are the basic story elements. I, and I want to get that across in the beginning so people have some reference to what we're talking about. So, the story elements are ge- genetic engineering of plants gone awry it, that, that corrupts the food supply, invades the human genome and threatens extinction of the human species. In in the story, mothers grieve over infants who are dying from mysterious illnesses that have never before been seen by medical science. There's an unusual love story, there's famine, there's human cannibalism. uh, Human cannibalism appears imminent. Um, uh, So here's an overview from the back cover, it's very brief, and this is it. It says, Plants have stopped producing nutrients. The, because the photosynthesis pro, uh, process in the plants have, has ceased the food supply is collapsing a small group of scientists led by giant by, by plant geneticist dr bill harrison race the clock to rejuvenate the world's dying food chain but something goes horribly wrong an unintended consequence worse than starvation feeling remorse for his involvement in the in the catastrophe bill redoubles his resolve to save humanity from a gruesome fate but time is running out as he confronts a mysterious, elusive, powerfully intelligent force that seems, seems to thwart his every move. So will a human species survive, or is it game over? So that's, that's the basics.
0: Well, to my listeners, I have read the book, and it's a very, very interesting way of presenting a possible dilemma, playing it forward just to give a scientific kind of approach to what could happen if, if this and this occurs. Bob, you've told me that EcoSpasm explores three main themes. What are those themes?
1: So one of the, the first theme, not in any order, but one of the themes is the interdependence that we have with the natural world or symbiotic relationship with plants. <clears throat> and I like to quote Chief Self or Chief Seattle. You know, the city Seattle is named after this uh, Native American chief. And what he says is, what the, whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons and daughters of the earth. Man did not weave the web of life, he is merely a strand in it. What he does to the web, he does to himself. That's attributed to chief self. So that's the symbiotic interdependence that we have with the natural world. The second uh, major theme is is the law of unintended consequences with science and technology, but more broadly. and for here, I quote um, Professor Mark Stoller, who, who, who shows the, um, outlines the law of unintended consequences <clears throat> excuse me, very succinctly. And he says this, consequences from human actions often differ sharply from motivations of those who acted. I'm going to say that again because it's so important. Consequences from human actions often, often differ sharply from motivations of those who acted. And then the third question is this: Is there some kind of superintelligence within nature, in plants, and in us? If there is, do we have free will in the presence of such a powerful force? So those are the uh, three things.
0: Those are very, uh, I would say, deep structural components of the story. And I think you do um, with your characters and your story uh, progress. really do touch upon all of those, which again, I found very intriguing when I read the book. Um, For myself, I I don't think we stress enough our symbiotic relationship with plants. And in today's world, unintended consequences are hardly discussed because we're so eager to have the next this, the next that. And then the last question that I like to ask, especially to my classes and uh, the places that I speak is. There is an intelligence in nature and what does that mean for us? I don't think we've ever had a broad or even a personal discussion in a, in a major way about that. Do you agree?
1: Oh, I completely agree. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so let's take them one at a time. Could you kind of elaborate <clears throat> on those a little bit uh, to give the readers a sense of the depth of your story?
1: Sure. So let's start with our independence with the environment and these are these are just sort of lessons to start with um if we if we respect and we nurture the natural world it will support our life and we will thrive but if we abuse and sufficiently damage the natural world we eventually will perish if we reverse our destructive behaviors quickly enough that's important quickly enough we're racing you know the clock in some areas like like climate change <clears throat> But if we reverse our destructive behaviors quickly enough and become good stewards of the environment, we may still be able to preserve our own life. And I'd say we're at such a crossroads now, so will we choose life? It remains to be seen.
0: Well, we have um, evolved over time and we have evolved over the natural world, but sometimes I think nature's smarter than we are as a human species. Um, I'd like to think that we get to some point in our development Well, we we do become good stewards of the environment, and again, the only way we get that across is through education, and probably starting with the younger grades, so that children understand what it means to be good stewards of the environment, and then they become the adults who understand that very concept, and it becomes part of their nature. There's wonderful school systems around the country who are growing their own vegetables and lettuces and fruit for their cafeteria, so the kids are getting something in in areas in our country, but but I don't know if it's enough, and that's the question we always ask, um, is it enough? So we have developed a a symbiosis uh, with plants. Could you tell us more about that?
1: It's actually, yeah, our relationship with plants, (coughs) excuse me, is a symbiosis. <clears throat> Excuse me. Plants and animals, including humans, we each provide the other, the other with what is needed to survive. We can't survive alone. We need each other. So here's how it works plants perform photosynthesis, and only plants can do that. Animals cannot. And what they do is they breathe in carbon dioxide and water vapor, and they use the sun's energy to rearrange and ram those molecules together, and they produce sugar, other nutrients, but the main, main point is they produce sugar and breathe out oxygen then humans and animals in general breathe in the oxygen, eat the sugar, and breathe, the, and breathe out the oxygen that plants provide. We use the sugar to create a, a molecule called ATP. It's, a, it's in every one of our cells, and it's needed for life. Without that, we die. It's simple as that. And then we breathe out carbon dioxide that the plants in turn take in and so on. It's an end, endless symbiotic cycle. So that's how it works.
0: Well, that to me is um, pretty oh, amazing one, 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 Judith, yes. can I just
1: say I forgot to say one thing. I, I, I'd mm-hmm. like to, in terms of these symbiotic relationships and, and coming to your, your issue of children, um, I recently was watching a PBS uh, Spirit television thing and it talked about a symbiotic relationship with giant sequoias. And it's really quick and I want to mention it. Um, the giant sequoia trees are about 300 feet tall, 30 feet in diameter. They're the largest trees in, on the planet. But they have very shallow roots. That's what they lack. They lack a deep root system. They're only about three three feet deep. I've seen oak trees, giant, hundred-year-old oak trees, blown over in hurricanes uh, because once the water, uh, the roots get soaked, and the water, you know, the roots get into the sorry, the soil gets muddy, and, and the roots aren't deep enough. The the trees fall over, and that's the situation with the sequoias. They only have three foot deep roots, but Here's the symbiosis between them. The roots are interconnected, different, the roots from different sequoias are interconnected uh, with each other and entwined so that if one tree is hit by a, a large wind, a wind uh, blast or something, it doesn't rely just on its own re- roots, but it relies on the roots of the collective and it doesn't blow over. In addition to that, there is a fungus which um, acts to facilitate the intertwining of the roots. And the fungus has a lock itself, because fungus um, cannot do photosynthesis, and they don't they have to rely on organic matter to survive. but what the sequoias do is they feed sugar to the to the fungus, so it's a beautiful uh, symbiosis so just wanted to mention that oh that's a
0: great that's a great example um of how the symbiotic relationship works not just from the oxygen carbon dioxide model but also what goes on underneath the ground, which I find really fascinating that there's this huge network of facilitators Um, they share nutrients underground Um, i don't think nature is set up to annihilate itself and i from what i've studied in other medical models that are based on nature we, we begin to see that everything that happens in the outside world happens in the inside world and that leads us to understand that there's an interconnection so that's that's a great great example uh, what about the second theme in ecospasm, the law of unintended consequences? Can you give us a couple of examples?
1: It is so big. It's so big an issue in everything in life. Um, first of all, in ecospasm itself, the story, it's in there as a very important theme. So the plants have ceased performing photosynthesis, as I mentioned, and they stop producing sugar. <clears throat> Um, And the scientists believe, and this story takes place in in the year 2104. It's about 85 years from now, so our technology will be way advanced compared to now. But the scientists believe that centuries-long use of poison pesticides have damaged the plants. And so the genetic genetic engineers invent a non-toxic pesticide substitute called MCGX. It's non-toxic. They're certain it's safe for humans and plants as well, but then something unexpected and unintended happens, and the consequences are huge and, and devastating. So while ecospasm involves unintended consequences of genetic engineering, it's, it's much broader than that. It's about unintended consequences more generally. And I want to give you a couple of examples, um, one in my own, in my own experience, sort of. <laughs> Uh, I had a postdoctoral fellowship at National Cancer Institute, and I was working in cell biology. What we were doing was we were growing cancer cells in a Petri dish, and we were using radioactive isotopes of iodine uh, uh, in the process. So the nutrients in, in the Petri dish were radioactive. And, um, you know, I was concerned. We had to be very careful with that stuff. We took iodine pills for, for safety, and, and and I was, you know, I, I began to wonder what might go wrong. Fortunately, nothing did. But about four years later, I, I attended a, a la- very large meeting in Washington, D.C., and it, the meeting was there to, to discuss a proposal, and the proposal was whether or not a, a biology lab, and I think it was a military lab, should start producing dangerous viruses and uh, deadly pathogens in the lab and I had remembered my concerns just about radioactive iodine so I by the way there was an audience of hundreds of people and there was a panel of experts on stage so uh, I took the microphone and I started talking about my concerns and I got shouted down I didn't know I didn't know what hit me I was really very naive in those days and I just clammed up but one of the experts on stage immediately came to my rescue and I remember He was kind of a slim fellow with red hair, and he was a Ph.D. biology professor from Harvard University. And he said, no, 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 let me tell you this story. There was a a biology lab that was growing cells in radioactive culture medium, just like I had been doing, right? The technician put the Petri dish with the radioactive cells and medium into a lock cabinet for the night. Unfortunately, he forgot to put the cap to top on the Petri dish, so it was open. And some ants discovered the petri dish and started feasting on the nutrients and became radioactive and traipsed around the entire laboratory and contaminated the entire laboratory. So there's an example of of unintended consequences. There's one. A second one, I'll make this very quick, but believe it or not, in the late 1960s, uh, we almost dropped a live hydrogen bomb over our own country in in Goldsboro, North Carolina. It's a story that only came out recently from Freedom of Information. uh, request, but the gist of the story is that these that a B-52 bomber carrying two two hydrogen bombs uh, disintegrated in the in midair and the, and the bombs dropped. Apparently, one of them fell harmlessly to the earth. The other one didn't. The parachute opened just as it would is if if it were a um, a weapon, and a switch fortunately stopped the bomb from going off. It was one one switch that went off, and they were concerned that. That switch could have been uh, damaged by a lightning bolt. Well, it turns out later, later, further uh, investigation into that story showed that the the switch actually failed. The hydrogen bomb would have blown up over North Carolina, except there was a second switch. <laughs> And that second switch also was vulnerable to a lightning bolt. So there's another case of unintended consequences. And the third one I wanna mention is just that somewhere, I want, I'm gonna be very careful what I say here, but I, according to the stories on, on Google News, and I have to be careful about that, um, there is a professor somewhere in the United States who has developed a version of the 2009 uh, avian flu that, that, would be, that is, a, is a pandemic virus in a laboratory created it and if it ever got out it would kill a billion people there's no vaccine for it so those kinds of things are going on and people seem to ignore the unintended consequences of what they're doing at times and which I think is awful
0: so we also have that history of doing that I remember when I was studying for my masters on cottonseed oil for example and I had to call various uh, agricultural departments in various states across the country um, I, I, was, I was appalled to learn that while we have the science that something is detrimental, we do it anyway. <laughs> you know, I don't understand where the integrity is or why we're not careful with consequences. And that goes back to respecting the planet and respecting all species, not just the human species, but all species on the planet. We had developed um, uh, uh, pesticides that ended up becoming... Uh, to pesticides which is killing fish, and when they wanted to kill a particular fish in a pond, they ended up killing everything else, so that the pond was effectively sterile and nothing could live in it, so unfortunately, we seem to learn by error and trial rather than playing it forward to see if it's really safe or if it makes sense from an ethical moral point of view, so those stories are very um, sobering, let's put it that way. Bob, you have another theme in ecospasm. Uh, what do you feel about superintelligence in nature and plants in us? And I find the question of free will to be a very um, intriguing one.
1: It is, I think it is, too. i just come back to what you were just saying, by the way, the examples you gave very quickly. Uh, and I want to say this because it's important. So, um, ecospasm is not, is not anti-science or anti- anti-genetic engineering. Genetic engineering is starting to become effective in treating or helping to cure cancer and other incurable diseases. Um, it's just that we have to be very careful of the unintended consequences of it. So the third theme um, is there a kind of superintelligence in nature and plants and in us, and if there is, do we really have free will? And I raise those issues in the story. There's a dialogue between the protagonist, who is a Western scientist, who has a serious interest in meditation, but he's really a Western, and he, he firmly believes in human free will. And he has a dialogue with an Eastern mystic who believes there's an overriding superintelligence called the ninth consciousness. And that ninth consciousness, the overriding superintelligence in all of life, values harmony among living things and is calling the shots. In other words, (laughs) has the ultimate free will. And I raise these questions. I don't. I don't uh, try to definitively. I don't presume to definitively answer them. I don't pretend to have a, an answer. It's a very complex subject, and these are age-old questions. But if anyone's interested, there's a whole chapter in there a that dialogue, and it explores that to some, some
0: depth. I found that fascinating um, at, from a reader point of view. To to bring in that the the opposite, so to speak, and have uh, some kind of a dialogue about it. I thought that was a very good writing. Technique to developing the story and moving the story forward. So you have a science background. What what prompted you or sparked you to write the sci-fi book on this kind of topic? That's
1: kind of funny in a way because I, the the idea for this story came suddenly. De- literally decades ago. It's almost embarrassing to say this, <laughs> but it was in a question and answer that I just popped into my mind. And my the question that popped into my head was, what would happen if the plants stopped producing photosynthesis and therefore ceased producing sugar and other nutrients? And I knew the answer: all animals, including humans, would cease to exist. And and that's because animals can't produce their own food. They can't, only plants can produce food which animals must eat to form the bottom of our food chain or else we'll all die. So I wrote a few chapters of the story, and then I, I realized I had, I had no idea where the story was going. And I put it away for years because I was really focusing on my attention and launching my university teaching career. Um, as far as my science, and, and I picked it up later, obviously. I picked up the story years later. Um, as far as the science background, so I have a B, B, BS in physics from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and a master's and PhD in theoretical physics from the George Washington University. And while I was in graduate school, I was also working for in U.S. government laboratories. So I have about ten years of research there in U.S. government laboratories. And then I had mentioned that postdoctoral research fellowship in biophysics and cell biology at the National Cancer Institute. So that's my background.
0: Well, so the GMO has been a very hot topic, and you played that for in the possible consequences. Um, can you give the reader briefly some good science? Well,
1: what we think of as GMOs, uh, mostly we think of uh, the word Monsanto and Roundup. Um, it's much broader than that. GMO stands for genetically modified organism, and it can be anything. And in ecospasm, there's a question of whether human beings themselves will become the ultimate genetically modified organism, whether we, whether we ourselves will become genetically modified. But when you think of it as GMO foods, we've got to whole foods and places like that. So anyway, controlling weeds has always been a big challenge for food crop farmers. I, I'm, I'm a vegetable gardener. I'm not a farmer, but even with a, a half-acre vegetable garden, the weeds are incredibly difficult to deal with. Um, so in 1974, the Monsanto Company introduced its powerful herbicide, a.k.a. weed killer, called Roundup, which we're all familiar with. And it was very good at killing weeds. And then about two decades later, 1996, they introduced what they call Roundup-ready seeds. Those seeds were genet- genetically engineered to tolerate the Roundup uh, her- herbicide. In other words, you could spray these plants with these genetically modified seeds. You could sp- uh, spray them with this incredibly strong herbicide, and nothing would happen. They'd survive it. Well, that's great if you're a farmer because um if you grow crops now, food crops with these genetically modified seeds um which are which uh came to be known as genetically modified organisms GMOs, you can plant these crops with these seeds and then spray the crops with Roundup and what happens is all the weeds get killed and the and the food crops survive. It's a brilliant system. But it had unintended consequences. Roundup appears to cause cancer and birth defects and all kinds of terrible things among, among uh, you know the workers in the farms. Um, so one question about GMO foods that we kind of kind of wonder about: Are they safe to eat? It's debatable. The National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, in a May 2016 report, on G- gave, they pr- produced I'm sorry they produced a, a re- major report on on uh, GMOs in May of of 2016. It's a very long report, but the apparent takeaway, according to newspaper editorials, which is is that the GMOs are safe for human consumption. That's what the newspaper editorials declared. I remember that. So a little later in 2016, in December, the New York Times had an article um, about the National Academy of Sciences in, in Engineering and Medicine about a, a different issue they were they were addressing, which is biotechnology and there was a, there was a pan, there are panels that advise the the entire academy there's about a panel of half a dozen or a dozen people, maybe a dozen people that look into the research and come to their conclusions about it and The New York Times um, posted a story in december two thousand and sixteen uh, and and the, the there's a like a quote about it that, that the panel is rife with conflicts of interest and they they name the panel members and they they Elucidate what kind of conflicts they have. Um, now, the GMO report was was um, issued by a different panel, but it does make you wonder. I mean, if, if if some of these panel members have conflicts within the very industry that they're that they are um, reg- that they are advising about or supposedly being objective about, it makes you wonder. I don't I don't know any longer whether I can trust those editorials that say that GMOs are safe. So I'm the jury's out for me. Um,
0: well, I'll first. tell you, a couple, a couple years ago, I don't know if you've heard of Ocean Robbins, but he and his father, who is John Robbins of the Baskin and Robbins thing. they conducted a GMO summit, which I took part in. And if anybody's interested, you can go to my blog on my website, com and you can look up a very practical um, explanation of what the GMO uh, actually is and what it isn't. Just to you know, expand on your topic, but go
1: ahead, Bob. Well, um, gen- genetically modified organisms more broadly um, is are very hot topics. Um, back, do, do we want genetically modified children? Ba- back in 2003, I believe it was Bill McKibben, who's a very well-known environmentalist, wrote a book called Enough, and he was explaining the again the unintended consequences of having um, designer kids, gen- designer children. Uh, and that's that's come very close to starting to happen now. There's been taboos against it. The taboos are falling down. There's a new uh, genetic engineering technique called CRISPR, in, which makes genetic engineering and changing of DNA far, far easier than ever it was. So it's a, it's a, it's a very serious issue of, of what's going to be the future of the human species, what kind of world we're going to live in.
0: So. It, it is. It is, because as you mentioned before, I think you shared with me, Just from an unintended consequence point of view, you know, cell phones are great, but we didn't realize an unintended consequence of amazing um, deaths from traffic accidents because people are busy on their phones. Um, So it, it raises a lot of questions. Are we prepared for the future? Have we thought about the future? What's our moral and ethical obligation to the future with these scientific advancements?
1: Let me put it in, in humorous terms. You know, Murphy's Law, anything that co- can go wrong will go wrong and at the worst possible time. And then someone once said Murphy, Murphy was an optimist. So. Huh? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. This is not to be a
1: naysayer. It's not to be negative. It's to be careful.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So if we're going to connect the dots here with um, the various points that you've made and your um, interest and curiosity in writing a story about a possibility um which concept uh, under the holistic framework uh, do you feel um, your book responds to the most or you personally respond to the most
1: yeah the thing that i that really um I, i really dig into uh in my own thinking is the idea inherent in all things in humans in nature in the universe itself that everything has a light side that enhances life and a dark side that damages or, or, damages or destroys life. For example, just think of a, a, a gentle breeze in the in springtime, and it, it, uh, it travels through the petals of a flower and disturbs the pollen. The pollen goes on the breeze, and then the, the pollen reaches another flower. And what is that doing? It's to create the next generation of flowers. It's, it, it enhances life. It generates life. So the breeze, the wind, is part of nature's way of of, uh, procreating life. But take that same physical property, the wind, and ramp the speed up to tornado uh, speeds, and it destroys everything in its path. And I think everything in life has that light side and, and that dark side. Genetic engineering and medicine promises miraculous cures of diseases, but in the hands of some people who insist on creating pandemic viruses in the laboratory, as I mentioned before, it could also wipe out billions of people. Uh, the Buddhists speak of enlightenment within us as well as the darkness innate in human life. And, f- and, and in that uh, uh, that's way of thinking, for us humans, our battle is to, to enhance our enlightened energies and diminish our dark, darkness energy or transform the darkness to create value through an inner revolution. It's called human revolution. Um, so, and even Carl Jung talked about the shadow the shadow side of, of the human psyche it, and what's not good is to repress the shadow that leads to neuroses and, and and in psychology and and what's not good is to deny the shadow, to deny the dark side. It's not to dwell on it again, it's not to be a pessimist, but it's also not good to just blithely go along and say nothing can go wrong because things do so that that's that's the concept that most a- animates me this whole idea of the light and the dark. As a fundamental entity of the of the universe itself.
0: Well, I think that's a good point to make. We could talk about that for the next three days because exactly. those are tough. You know, <laughs> exactly. my heart. Days. Yes, and there's such great um, authors and writers out there who are working in the field of personal transformation. Carolyn Mace, for example, ha- happens to be my top um, go-to uh, person for uh, understanding the shadow, the light, and And how to integrate my own um, shadow and light side. It's all about integration. It's all about understanding who and what we are. And when we do that, I think we're better human beings, number one. And I think we realize our interconnectedness, number two. And it brings forth a different sense of compassion. And that's what I hope to do with some of these podcasts is to um, inspire people to rethink their, especially their, relationship to nature, uh, uh, for example. Uh, do, is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we conclude? I just want to re-
1: reiterate uh, a few things. Well, re- first of all, I want to re- reiterate what I said about, um, about people, about uh, how people tick, how we all tick. <laughs> and again, you know, some people can be convinced by facts and documentaries and, and reason, and I'll say it again, but other other folks cannot be persuaded by those methods. They just resist letting the facts in. I, I guess that's what it is. But they may be moved by direct appeal to their emotions with, through drama and fiction. And that's what I hope. That's one of my goals in, in, in promoting EcoSpasm um, as a dramatic, it's a dramatic sci-fi thriller of unintended consequences as a novel and hopefully as a movie uh, that may motivate some of those people who who have resisted uh, documentaries and resisted facts to reconsider their reconsider the consequences un- intended and unintended of, of the choices. It's the choices we make and the actions we take in our relationship w- with the natural world. And and I want to emphasize again on which we depend for our survival as a species. Um, I also, I guess, if there's time, I'd like to read a few excerpts. Um, there is a Nobel Prize-winning uh, environmentalist by the name, name of Eric Chivian. He read the book and he did a, a review of it, and he kind of um, supports some of the themes that I've been talking about. And so I want to quickly uh, just just read a few excerpts, frankly, uh, of it. And he says, he, first of all, he he comes up with his own examples of unintended consequences that I hadn't thought of. For instance x-rays, believe, I didn't <laughs> know this, but uh, we used to use x-rays to uh, x-ray people's uh, feet when they were, they were in a shoe store before we realized that they were dangerous, and, and he goes on to other examples. Um, but he said an ecospasm, this is a shameless plug, but, it, but he, he, he captures it so well, He says, in Ecospasm, Robert Radin has well captured this dual aspect of scientific innovation, both its great promise and its unintended consequences. He has produced a page turner that issues a warning about our increased reliance on genetically modified GM food crops and on the pesticides on which these crops depend. Though he is a theoretical physicist, Dr. Radin is clearly well informed about the complex interdependence of our planets, plants, animals, and microbes and about how we human beings are an integral intimate part of these living systems. Ecospasm provides a lesson that we ignore at our peril, that by our ever-increasing reliance on GM crops, which are, which are now planted on some 170 million acres in the United States, almost half of all U.S. farmland, and by our ever-increasing reliance on the mixture of herbicides and insecticides and fungicides applied to these crops, we are, in essence, performing an experiment on the living world, including on ourselves, an experiment for which we have little to no data about potential consequences, an experiment for which we have not given our informed consent. The result, as Dr. Aiden warns, could end up being catastrophic, and he closes by saying, I recommend this highly engaging and thought provoking thriller to all. And he is a he's founder and dire- Eric Chivian, MD, founder and director. Center for Health and the Global Environment, Harvard Medical School. So I think he captured it very well.
0: Oh, I think he did, too. Um, Bob, where can the readers get your book?
1: So it's available uh, uh, for purchase on Amazon. uh, And the nice thing about Amazon is that they provide a few sample chapters a select a, a few sample selections, but there are a few first few chapters, so you can read it for for free online and see, see if it interests you. There's also some information avail, available on my website. So my website address is www. I'll spell it dot robertradin. com and I'm currently working on it to revise a screenplay for Ecospasm, so I am looking, obviously, for a producer and for an agent for that. So, thank you very much, oh, Judith.
0: Oh, you are welcome. I'm so grateful that you could join us today. I know I um, was intrigued by the book. It is a page-turner, I will tell you that. And uh, uh, I can't spoil be a spoiler about the how, the how it ends, but I hope you feel as inspired as I do by... Bob's practical talk and practical advice but also what's behind um, a a, a work of fiction, a sci-fi thriller fiction that actually can have some um, connection to thinking about what kind of future we want and that's uh, intrigued me for bringing Bob on to the holistic nature of us. So I'm going to say thank you, Bob, and I'm going to conclude this podcast. Again, this is Judith Dreyer, author of the book At the Garden's Gate, book and blog. And my book At the Garden's Gate is available through my website, which is www.judithdreyer.com, or it's available on Amazon, Nook, Kobe, Indigo, as well as through the Ingram Distribution Network. Visit my website for a replay of this podcast, and of course, all reviews are welcome. So thank you again, folks, and have a great day.